Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Ezekiel chapter 12. That's where we'll be this morning in a continuing sermon series on Ezekiel, God giving hope to exiles like us. I want to start in a way that I don't usually start, and so it's going to be a little bit off-putting at first, because when you do something different, people are just kind of, they, well, okay, what's going on? What's going on? I'm no longer in the place. So, so just kind of be at peace and, and work with me while I pose this question to you, and I particularly, if you are, uh, if you are a young child or a student, I want you to help me answer this question. And that is, I want you to raise your hand if you've ever gone on a trip, right? Maybe a vacation or to visit family or something like that. So raise your hand, okay? All right, okay. So let me then ask you this. I want, I want the kids in particular. If you're going on a trip, what is something that you're going to do? What is something you're going to have with you? If you're going on a trip, what do you think you're going to bring with you? Or let me put it to you this way. What if you were holding it, as soon as people saw you, they'd be like, oh, they're going on a trip. What would that be? Just call it out. Just yell it out. Luggage? Yep. A suitcase, maybe? Even a, maybe like a cartoon, you got the stick and the little, little bag tied on the end of it, maybe, if you're really going low budget, okay? So by observing someone, when you see someone with a suitcase, okay, and, and maybe it's, it's stuffed full, and they've got maybe one of those uh, like travel wallets that hang around their neck, or uh, Lord help us, maybe they have one of those little fanny packs, um, these are, these are indications that when you see them, you know, you're like, oh, okay, that person is traveling. That person's going on a trip. Pretty soon they're going to be on the move. In Ezekiel chapter 12, God tells Ezekiel, the prophet, to do something kind of strange. He tells him to pack a bag and to start to leave, start to leave his house with it so that everyone who saw him would immediately know that he's on a trip. Okay, now what kind of trip? Well, it was not a happy trip. What he's doing in that moment is he's symbolizing to Israel, giving them a picture and saying, uh, especially the people who lived in Jerusalem, that they will soon be joining us in exile in Babylon, right? Because, well, because God keeps his promises. That's really what we've been talking about. Uh, One thing that uh, probably... uh, I didn't make clear enough in these last few sermons, and really since we started, one thing that we really have to make clear is one particular text in Deuteronomy chapter 30, which is really the basis for the last few chapters of Ezekiel. So if we can go there now, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 18. So Moses in the book of Deuteronomy is repeating all of God's words to the people, all of God's law to the people. That's what Deuteronomy means. Deutero means second, and nomos means law. Those are two Greek words. And so the second giving of the law or the repeating of the law. And so this is what Moses tells them. The Lord says, see, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. Going? If you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God that I command you today by loving Yahweh your God, walking in His ways, keeping His commandments, His statutes, His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and Yahweh your God will bless you in the land you're entering to take possession of it, Jerusalem and the surrounding places. But if your heart turns away, you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, and we know from the texts we've looked at in previous chapters, that's exactly what's going on. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. Translation, 
God tells Israel, if you walk in covenant with me, you'll stay in the land. If you reject me, uh, and, and I mean, we're not talking about, uh, you know, I forgot to say my prayers this morning. We're, saying, we're, we're, we're talking about an absolute rejection of all that God had promised to be to them. He says, I'm going to remove you from this land, or rather some parts of Deuteronomy, you might even say the land is going to remove, the land itself is going to kick you out. The people of Israel refused to believe God's words, instead choosing to believe their preferred false prophet, their preferred news commentator, if you like, and his version of the future. And so what is it and apparently, by the way, it's interesting that apparently the, the Israelites in exile were also still believing that because Ezekiel's in exile with them and he's telling them what's going to happen to Jerusalem, that, that, the, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back and the city is going to be destroyed and the king and all the people are going to be dragged out and led away and put into exile. And meanwhile, all the people in Jerusalem, and apparently some of the people in exile too, are saying, no, 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 we're God's special people. Nothing bad will ever happen to us. Okay? And we talked about that in a previous sermon, how you know, they could even, quote-unquote, claim promises by ignoring certain parts of Scripture and emphasizing other ones. Uh, and so that's why I started with this text in Deuteronomy, to say this is God keeping His promise to them. And so, let's go ahead and then go to Ezekiel chapter 12, and I'll go ahead and read the text uh, for, um, well, we'll start, I'm going to kind of walk my way through it piecemeal, and then we'll look at some other texts as well. So, I'm just realizing that I forgot to open by reading the text, uh, which Burley already knows. Um, So, why don't I do that now, okay? The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see, but see not ears to hear, but hear not for they are a rebellious house. As for you, son of man, prepare for yourself an exile's baggage. Okay, there's the suitcase and go into exile by day in their sight. You shall go like an exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house. You shall bring out your baggage by day in their sight as baggage for exile. And you shall go out yourself at evening in their sight and those do who must go into, as those do who must go into exile. In their sight, dig through the wall. Bring your baggage out through it. In their sight, you shall lift the baggage upon your shoulder and carry it out at dusk. You shall cover your face that you may not see the land, for I have made you a sign for the house of Israel. And I did as I was commanded. I brought up my baggage by day as baggage for exile. In the evening I dug through the wall with my own hands. I brought out my baggage at dusk, carrying it on my shoulder in their sight. In the morning the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, son of Adam, son of the dirt. Son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, what are you doing? which I think they might have said to Ezekiel at any number of points so far. Say to them, thus says the sovereign Lord, the Lord God, this oracle concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are in it. Say, I am a sign for you. That's God saying to Ezekiel, tell these people, I am a sign for you. As I have done, so shall it be done to them. They shall go into exile, into captivity, and the prince who is among them shall lift up his baggage upon his shoulder at dusk and shall go out. They shall dig through the wall to bring him out through it. He shall cover his face that he may not see the land with his eyes, and I will spread my net over him. He shall be taken in my snare. 
I will bring him to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans. He shall not, yet he shall not see it, and he shall die there. And I will scatter toward every wind all who are around him, his helpers and all his troops. I will unsheathe the sword after them, and they shall know that I am Yahweh when I disperse them among the nations and scatter them among the countries. But I will let a few of them escape from the sword, from famine and pestilence, that they may declare all their abominations among the nations where they go and may know that I am Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord, and we say, Thanks be to God. And so that's our text for this morning, verses 1 through 16. So then let's go ahead and proceed uh, after the Deuteronomy text, Burley, is going to be verses 1 and 2, as we just read. God tells Ezekiel twice in, this, uh, in our text, in our verses this morning, that, Israel is, uh, that Ezekiel is talking to a rebellious house. Interesting side note, never once does the Lord seem to say, Ezekiel, that means you can relax in your responsibilities to give my word to them. Their rebellion and their hard-heartedness, God says, still say my words in the midst of them. Okay? You, you know they're a rebellious house. They have eyes to see, but they don't see. They have ears to hear, but they don't hear. Why? Because they are a rebellious house. They are blind then, blind and deaf. They have eyes to see, but they don't see. Ears to hear, but they don't hear. And spiritual blindness is a pretty common um, metaphor or kind of word picture in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. Uh, we're going to spend some time with it this morning. Uh, but the, uh, if you wanted a definition of spiritual blindness, here's one for you. Spiritual blindness is to hear and see the work of God and still remain actively unmoved, unconvinced. Okay? So actively unmoved, unconvinced. You know, God's working and I don't, uh, don't care. Choose not to see it. Right? In this case, God is going to put a picture in front of them, this dude Ezekiel with his bag packed, leaving his house to say, this will be you soon. Don't listen to the false prophets who say it's all okay. Get ready to pack your bags because you will be leaving Jerusalem. And so that's what he says, verses 3 and 4. He tells him to uh, prepare for yourself an exile's baggage. Go into exile day by day. So do this repeatedly. Go in, uh, you shall go like an exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand. Perhaps they will understand. And then what does he tell them to do? Verses 4 and 5. He says, pack this bag and then bring out the bag in their sight and you shall go out uh, in the evening in their sight. So we have morning and evening. Verse 5. In their, oh, sorry. In their sight, dig through the wall. Now, what wall are we talking about? Most likely we're talking about the wall of Ezekiel's own house. Walls, uh, the houses at this point would have been probably big mud bricks and would not have posed great difficulty to dig through. I mean, it would have taken some doing, but, but it wouldn't have been impossible. Uh, upon hearing this, it, it wouldn't be, you know, well, that's about, you know, I need tools. I need to, you could probably dig through it, uh, given enough time and energy uh, just with your hands. And so, uh, so he tells them to do that. Dig through the wall of your house. And then verse 6. So carry out that baggage after you've done that upon your shoulder, carry it out at dusk. You shall cover your face that you may not see the land, for I have made you a sign for the house of Israel. Okay, that's kind of weird. Why does he have to cover his face? We're going to get there. So he does it, verse 7. That's what verse 7 tells us. And I did as I was commanded. I brought out baggage day by day, baggage for exile in the evening, dug through the wall, 
brought out my baggage at dusk, carrying it on my shoulder in their sight. All right? So God gives these instructions, pack a bag, and then walk out in front of everybody so they see you with your packed bags. That's what we started. You know, kids and students, you remember, if somebody sees you with packed bags, they know you're going on a trip. And this is not a happy trip, but Ezekiel's trying to communicate to them, this will soon be you. But I want you to notice something. How many times, because we're talk, talking of spiritual blindness, how many times does God want to make sure that Ezekiel does this in a place where he can be seen? Go to the next one, Burley. So this is, I'm not sure, you, you can't see it very well. I, sorry, I thought it was going to show up better on here. But this is um, part of some of the software I use for sermon uh, research and preparation and stuff. And I've got highlighted in green every time the, the phrase, in their sight, happens. And between verses like 2 and 7, it happens seven times. Right? In their sight, in their sight, in their sight, in their sight, in their sight. Right? He, he says it again and again and again and again. So make sure, apparently this is really important, okay? If you're, if you're studying a Bible passage and you notice a phrase or word keeps getting repeated again and again and again, you ought to pay attention. It's probably important. Why? Well, if we're talking about ancient manuscripts and where the Bible comes from, I mean, it was handwritten, so it wasn't on a computer screen. They didn't have a bold key, okay, to, to emphasize stuff. You didn't have a bold or an italics key, so what you did was you repeated it. And that's, that's really the, an ancient way of communicating significance or importance is to repeat something. So apparently, do this in their sight. But wait a minute, verse 2, Son of man, you dwell in a rebellious house. They don't have eyes to see. So why are you doing this in their sight? Well, apparently, spiritually blind people need to see. Spiritually blind people need it put in front of their face. So then we resume with our text, verses 8 and 9. They see this, and they ask him, what are you doing? They ask Ezekiel, what are you doing? And what does he tell them? He says, say to them, Ezekiel, thus says the Lord God, this oracle concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are in it. So who's he talking about? Prince of Jerusalem, okay, is a way of talking about the king. In a sense, you know, Yahweh is king. So the king of Israel is, is a prince in that sense. So we're talking about Zedekiah, right? I know you've got your Old Testament king history of Israel chart in your head. You've got it memorized because you guys are awesome like that. So this is Zedekiah, so you can find him mentally on that chart. He says this oracle, just in passing, something that's kind of cool, the word that's translated oracle there can mean oracle, prophecy, or burden, right? So if you, this burden, this bag that you're carrying, or this prophecy you're making, it could, the sentence could go either way. That's just cool that the Lord knows how to do word plays, Okay. So this oracle, this burden, concerns the prince of Jerusalem and all who are under his lordship, okay? So what is it? Verse 10, uh, excuse me, 11. Uh, say, I am a sign for you, right? As I've done, so shall it be done, right? You are going, Jerusalem, you are one day going to pack your bags and be sent out of the city, prince first, ruler first, king first. They shall go into exile, into captivity. It will happen, it shall be done, Verse 12 tells us uh, that this is, again, the prince gets mentioned. The prince who's among them, he's the one who's going to lift up his baggage on his shoulder. And again, when your king gets conquered, that, I mean, when your king is leaving, that's how you know you've lost. They shall dig through the wall to bring him out through it. So what, what do we see here? Now we see that apparently 
the Babylonians are going to break through the wall uh, of Jerusalem and bring them out through it. At least, at least some people will be brought out that way. Okay? So why was Ezekiel digging through his house? Well, it was to, again, to image this is what's going to happen to the walls of Jerusalem. He shall cover his face that he may not see the land with his eyes. You already know sight is important in this text. Okay? They, they have eyes, but they don't see. Do this in their sight. But his eyes are going to be covered that he may not see. Okay? Verses 13 and 14. Essentially, what we're told here is that this is God's judgment. He wants to make it clear. I'm the one who does this. It's my net. I'll bring him to Babylon. Yet he shall not see it. He shall die there. I'll scatter toward every wind those who are around him, his helpers and his troops, and I'll unsheathe the sword after them. So this is God's action. God's doing it. Next verse, please. And they shall know that I am Yahweh. Most repeated phrase in all of Ezekiel. They shall know when I disperse them among the nations and scatter them among the countries. Because you see, when we don't believe what God has said, it's because we don't know who God is. Not really. Not as the one who keeps his promises. Go ahead. But I will let a few of them escape from the sword, famine, pestilence, that what? They may declare their own sin to all those nations that I scattered them to. Right? So that they may know that I am Yahweh. So, all right. At the risk of repeating myself too much, where did we start? Verse 3, please. We started with, pack your bag. Okay? That's verses 3 and 4. And then if you can go to verses uh, well, 4 and 5, he tells them to make this hole in the wall and dig through it, okay, in their sight. And then verse 6, he says to cover your face. Let me find that, sorry. Uh, put the baggage on your shoulder and cover your face that you may not see the land. And then what? The people ask, what does this mean? Okay? And he tells them, this is what God is going to do. And I told you it's a prophecy about Zedekiah and the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which, by the way, we have record of in the Scriptures. 2 Kings 25. Can we go there now, please? 2 Kings 25, the end of 2 Kings, tells us about this moment. Okay? Ezekiel prophesied it. Obviously, this part of 2 Kings wasn't written yet when he did. Uh, but so 2 Kings, this part's written after Ezekiel's prophecy, and this is what we read about. The, the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, coming to destroy. The city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city, there was no food for the people of the land. Go ahead. Then a breach was made in the city. A hole was made in the wall. Okay. And all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. Go on. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king, brought him up to the king of Babylon, passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and they blinded him. So here's Ezekiel covering up his eyes. And what he's doing is prophesying, this is what one day will happen to the king of Babylon. And you don't see right now that God keeps his promises. Neither does the king. And one day he will pay for it with his eyes. And so we see that the king's spiritual blindness culminated in an actual blindness. 
that idolatrous blindness became actual physical blindness. All this came back to a refusal to believe what God had told them would happen. And we're right back in the garden, aren't we? Has God really said? There have not been too many variations on temptation since. And so this is the reality of spiritual blindness, that you and I, for as long as we are in this world, until our faith becomes sight, we struggle to see. It's true of unbelievers, obviously, that's having eyes they do not see, but also believers. We get, as it were, fog in our eyes. We have difficulty seeing the things that God has said and believing them. So I want to talk about those two things real quick. One, spiritual blindness affects the world, and two, it affects the church, it affects us. So how do I know that spiritual blindness affects the world? For that, I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The sermon this morning is going to be a survey of the spiritual blindness that Ezekiel is talking about. So therefore, having this ministry, the Apostle Paul says, by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. So Paul's talking about his preaching to the city of Corinth. He says, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's a whole sermon. I did an abbreviated version of it on Facebook this morning, if you're curious. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from what? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Notice something. He does not say that the unbelieving world is failing to understand information about Christ. He says the world is blind to the gospel of the glory of Christ. And the world is made to see when they see glory. And so, a a short way of explaining that is that when you see something that's glorious, that makes you happy, that makes you rejoice, that makes you excited, you tell people about it. And in that sense, you you give glory to it because it's beautiful to you. Or maybe a really simple analogy would be just, how do you glorify a fountain? You go to the fountain, you drink from it, and you say, delicious, like I'm, I'm refreshed. That is good, right? That's seeing the glory, seeing the goodness. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of what? of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, this blind world is made to see when people who are captive to Jesus' glory share it and talk about it. That's how this glory spreads across the world. When we really are, we, we delight in what our Lord has done and we talk about it. You already do that with things you find glorious. You already do that with things you find glorious. And so... Let me say this, if you do not believe in Jesus, I want to know why. Seriously, like I, I want to know why. Send me an email, call me up, we'll get coffee. I want to know why. But I'm going to give away some of what I, I might say to you if you say I don't believe in Jesus. I would say just know that nobody is better at lying to you than you are. Okay, So just take that seriously. And then number two, have the courage to doubt your doubts. So where do your doubts come from and and kind of ask those questions to yourself. All things that I would, I would love to swear. That if you don't believe in Jesus, like, I would love to talk to you about that. And so spiritual blindness affects the world. Okay? 
Number two, spiritual blindness can also affect the church. We can get sand in our eyes, fog in our eyes, as it were. How do I know this? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 9. Here's what the Apostle Peter says. He says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. He's speaking to Christians. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Okay? So Christians, apparently, can live in such a way that they start to practice and live out a kind of blindness. So nearsighted that he's blind. They, they live a life that doesn't fit with what? Someone who's been cleansed from their sins. Okay? So the way you live is not like, It's not commensurate with how a forgiven person should live. Now, that sounds really serious. So what are these qualities that Peter's talking about? Because we've got to have these qualities. So glad you asked. Yeah, let's go back up to the top. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Next bit. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, here we go, here are the qualities. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and your virtue with knowledge. And most Christians stop right there. Go back up, please. Most Christians stop. Right there, I think. Faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge. Okay? So faith, all right, I know what faith is. That's believing in Jesus. Virtue, okay, being a good neighbor, practicing, let's just say broadly, obedience to Ten Commandments. Okay? Next, knowledge. Okay? Information about Jesus. Theology. Got it. Got, got virtue, good practices, got knowledge, theology. And we stop there. Most of American Christianity, I would say, stops here once it has these two things. And I would offer to you that's why there's blindness in the church. Because we stop right here. Peter doesn't stop there. What does he go on to next? Add to your knowledge self-control. Self-control, steadfastness, steadfastness, godliness. Let's talk about self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit that a lot of us today would willingly forfeit. Part of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, sometimes we'll even make a joke of it. Yeah? You've heard this joke? Don't pray for patience. Don't pray for self-control. Well, why? Well, because then God may like, put you in situations where you actually have to use it. You actually have to be patient. Are you insane? Are you insane? If you think that way, then you are still going to be in those situations. You're just going to sin more. Self-control. Self-control. Here's something. If you want to be a rebel in this, in this day and this culture of instant gratification, click of a, of a button, click of a, a touch of a screen, high-speed download, two-day prime delivery. If you want to be a rebel in this world, plead with God for self-control. And you will stick out like a sore thumb, or rather you will stick out like light shining in the midst of a dark and blind world. I'm absolutely convinced that one of the biggest frontiers for ministry in our culture and in our country in the next few generations will be addiction recovery, and not just because of what we just prayed for, but because, take this home, because we are all addicts in a sense. Here's what I mean. We don't just eat, we gorge. We don't just watch TV, we binge watch TV. Like we, we joke about moderation while we flaunt our excess and make a joke of it. 
And then we build churches that supply people with a dopamine-inducing emotional system shock on Sunday. Because in a culture of addiction, religion is simply one more way to get high. Will we repent of our blindness? Steadfastness is the next one. I have not yet begun to preach the sermon I want to preach today about the sin of boredom. Yeah. God calls us to be steadfast, to hold firmly to what He's told us, because He knows how easily bored we are. Easily bored we are. Because, to go back to the previous point, culture of addiction, you're you're always looking for your next fix, the next thing, the next bit of new excitement. Most of the seduction of false teaching just happens because we, addicts that we are, get really bored. Marriages struggle mightily because we get bored. Some marriages fail because we get bored. Just because people get bored with each other. You... And you know how you know if you're sinfully bored? Here it is. You complain a lot. And then you, you take your complaining and you call it just being honest, just speaking my mind, just unburdening myself, and then you get married. And you're like, great, I'm married now. Here's somebody I can just share all the things with. And they look at you very lovingly and say, you complain a lot. (laughs) And in response, you say, no, I don't. (laughs) Which doesn't exactly work. Right? But no, and so this is recently something that the Lord has revealed to me. I, I complain a lot. I do, and I, I, but I hide it under the guise of like, well, I'm just, un, like, just unloading, just whatever, venting, just whatever the word is. So this is, and this is why we steadfastness with godliness, with godliness, steadfastness, like satisfaction will enable you to be steadfast. Godliness, just read that as God-likeness, imitating God, imitating Christ, imitating Jesus who's given himself up for us. And then, if that weren't enough, Godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Does it not make you angry that those two are distinguished? Like, I wish he had just said love, but not affection. Like, affection's much harder, right? And you've heard this before, right? You've heard, um, well, I, I love, I love everyone. I just don't really like everyone. Oh, shut uh, hush. <laughs> stop it. Stop it. We all know what you're saying. And the Lord, and Peter says, no. Peter understands this. He says, no. So love, but not just love, affection. You have to like each other. And you have to love each other until you like each other. Then we get to verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they, what, keep you from becoming ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge, and we stop there. And it's right there. He says, if you just got the knowledge, you're not done yet. In fact, you can be ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Why are we so ineffective or unfruitful? Because we stop at knowledge. And we don't, we don't pursue these other things to grow. And so, to, to return to Ezekiel. Oh my. <laughs> to return to Ezekiel. Right, we started in chapter 12 
with the Lord declaring, this is a rebellious house. They are blind, they are deaf. They have eyes, but they don't see. Ears, but they don't hear. Why? Because they're rebellious. Spiritual blindness still confronts us today in the world and in the church. So what do we do? First, we plead with God Almighty to open our eyes. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. That is what I need most. And second, we realize that people who can see do something with their seeing. Namely, they proclaim the realities of an invisible God who we can't see yet. That's what they do. Verse 16, right? Verse 16 says, I'm going to rescue a remnant, but why? So that they can then go and tell the nations about their sin and God's rescue. It's, it's the great commission in the Old Testament right here. Knowing God and talking about God then are intimately connected. And so what do, we, what do we do with this information? Well, the first thing I want to say is that being rescued by Jesus, salvation, it, it does put some things in front of us in terms of loving our neighbor. And, and, and so in that sense, like the, where I want to start with you is, is to provoke you to this question and just say, where's the spiritual blindness? Where's the sin that I'm tolerating? Because uh, almost every time I meet for uh, anyone really with counseling, like with, with very few exceptions, y'all, the problems that confront them are always somebody else's fault. <laughs> and, and, and so that, there's, there's blindness in play there. Not to say that people haven't wronged you. I bet they have. But God has told the world. He tells the world repeatedly in preaching. He shows us in His Word about this gospel that is meant to go out to all the world. But I think too often American Christianity has been reduced to the ability to be stubbornly angry about the right things, right? And that's really what I think. When I survey, I guess guess mainly what I'm thinking of is social media, but it's like what is, what are, if, if Christians are supposed to be different from the rest of the world, then what is our difference in public? A lot of what I see right now is like, I'm a Christian, so that means unlike all the rest of you, I'm really angry about the right things, because we have virtue, we have knowledge, we have nothing beyond that. It should be that when the gospel moves in to the neighborhood, life gets better. So to, to tell you, help you understand what I'm saying there, I don't know if you've heard that per capita we live in one of the most violent cities in the country. And that means in the name of Jesus we have some amazing opportunities in front of us. When Christians move into the neighborhood, those things should go down. Violence actually should go down. Divorce rates should go down. When divorce rates go down, families tend to stay out of poverty. That's just statistical reality. They tend to have kids who stay out of poverty. They tend to be more financially stable so they can then go and help their neighbors. And then the neighborhood gets a little better. And so let me sort of veer off for a second because marriage, let me talk about that. So what is a way we can distinguish ourselves from the rest of the world, right? The rest of the world engages in its own blindness. How is it that Christians see? Well, what if we took marriage as seriously as God does? What if we took the vocation of husband and wife as seriously as God does, right? And I'm going to say something here, and I've, I've prayed about it. Lord, have mercy. And if I might, well, how about I just say it, yeah? I really do say this from a place of genuine love and, can, and maybe a little concern. But when I, in, in the last few months, when I would tell some people, and some in this church, some at a different church, some don't go to church, 
I was telling people that I was getting married. Most men did not say, are you ready? You ready to lead your home? You ready to sacrifice? Do you pray for her? What do you think sacrificial love is going to look like? Do you maybe have another married couple who you could talk to, who you can learn from, who you can be open with? What I got, with all respect, my brothers, what I got from most men were jokes about keeping your head down, keeping your mouth shut, learning how to say yes, dear, and do whatever she tells you. Now, that's a joke. I know. I get it. Ha, ha, ha. You know, I, I get it. But let me just ask. Is that how the blood-bought community of saints are supposed to talk about God's institution? I'm asking. Actually, no, I'm answering. No! (laughs) And if you want to know why young people are putting off marriage, it's because a lot of married people make it look so miserable. What if in a world that saw marriage as something to be discarded or endured, we were crazy enough to believe it's good? And listen... I know some of you just tuned me out because I've been married for two and a half months. I know, I know, you just, the little radio dial, you just went, easy for you to say. Okay, maybe it is. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it it probably is easier for me to say. So then take it up with the Lord. What would he have you do if you don't hear it from me? Then take it up with the Lord. This biblical concept that we're the body of Christ, to get back on track, means that we make the work of an invisible God visible to the world. I don't have it in the, in the presentation, but there's a bit in one of the letters of Paul where he tells people from prison that he's filling up the afflictions of Christ, filling up what's lacking, which sounds almost blasphemous. Like, Paul, what's lacking in the affliction of Jesus? Answer, you can't see it. And here's Paul's beaten, bruised body. And he says, do you know what your Lord does for you? Come and see. Come and look at me. Right? I'm filling up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ because you can't see them. So if you come visit and talk to me, you can see them or something like them. It's that same concept that, that we are to image to the world the invisible reality of Jesus. What if in a world that's angry, angry all the time, Lord help us, what if we actually believed that a gentle answer turns away wrath? Like what would that look like? If, if people in our neighborhoods were like, yeah, like, everybody's angry except for those Christians. Except for those Christians. How would that impact our workplaces, our Facebook pages, our dinner tables? What if in a world that mocks everything, just mockery, mockery, cynicism, cynicism, we, we took holy things really seriously? Or even better, we just knew what holy things were. <laughs> so, so just like Ezekiel walking out of his house, right, carrying a suitcase to image to blind people, as it were. This is what the Lord will do. He keeps His word. We ourselves are called to image God in Christ so that people might lose their blindness and witness the light of the glory of the gospel. Part of the trouble. This is perhaps a different sermon for a different day, but just for what it's worth, I think sometimes part of our struggle is a lot of you, especially if you come out of a really legalistic background, like Oneness Pentecostal or Independent Fundamental Baptist or something like that, if you come out of a really legalistic background, you you tend to be super sensitive to anything that sounds like, you know, obey the commandments of God. 
It just, especially like for all the good that sonship has done, if you're familiar with the sonship study, and I love sonship, but you can, the temptation you're going to struggle with post-sonship is anytime someone says, obey the commandments, like, I don't know, like when Jesus says that, you're going to struggle with that. Uh, and so, so that's, that's part of, I think, kind of one of the challenges before us. But I'm, I'm saying that, yeah, we really are called to follow after our Savior and what He did. So, in conclusion, last thing that I want to close with is that if we struggle with spiritual blindness, if the world struggles with spiritual blindness, what does God do with spiritually blind people? The answer is He gives them sight. He makes them see. He makes them see when they cry out to Him. Go to, uh, these are the texts, two texts I'm going to close with, both from the Gospels. So sometimes the Lord makes blind people see instantly, right? Lord, deliver me, and He does. Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed Him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, Son of David. When He entered the house, the blind man came to Him, and He says, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they say to Him, Yes, Lord. Then He touched their eyes, According to your faith, be it done to you. And then what happened after that? Their eyes were opened. And Jesus said, see that no one knows about it. That's a, different, well, that's a different sermon for a different time. Actually, I preached through Matthew some years ago. You can go find it. <laughs> but their eyes were opened instantly. And sometimes that is the way the Lord works. We plead with God, Son of David, have mercy on us. And He does, like right then and there, delivering us from spiritual blindness. And so I'm telling you, you can pray to the Lord. I don't even know, Lord, how I'm blind. Open my eyes. And he will. And sometimes he does it, I mean, in that moment. Sometimes, Mark chapter 8, sometimes it's not instantaneous. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man and, uh, by the hand and led him out of the village. When he, when he had spit on his eyes, that sounds kind of gross, right? He laid his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Well, that's weird. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. There will be moments of deliverance that just are kind of instantaneous in a moment. And sometimes you will, if I can take this principle from this text, sometimes you will have to keep going back to Jesus again and again. And again, and he, heal, he will heal you over a, over a period of time. You say, I, I still can't quite see, Lord. He says, I'll, 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 I'll do it again. I still can't quite see, Lord. I'll do it again. I still can't quite see, Lord. I'll do it again. Until your sight is restored. And so sometimes God opens your eyes in really radical, decisive ways. Sometimes it's a progressive thing over a long period of time. And it takes a lot of patience and self-control and brotherly affection, and steadfastness, and other things that we're called to add to our faith. But what's true in both cases is both of these men come to Jesus pleading, have mercy. Lord, I want you to heal me. Lord, I want you to open my eyes. A good reminder for us that the only kind of, the only kind of affliction that Jesus heals, and the only kind of sin that Jesus forgives is confessed sin. Here it is, Lord, have mercy on me. I am blind, Lord, I need your healing. And so that's why we come to Jesus again and again and again and encourage one another to do the same. It's why we come to this table again and again and again. It's where Jesus feeds us and says, here, take this again, take this again. Yes, I know, take this again. I'll keep feeding you. I'll keep feeding you. I'll keep sustaining you. 
or as long as you need, which, by the way, is until the very last day. In the name of Jesus, amen. And so, our Father, amen, we, we thank you for opening up our eyes that we can confess with the saints through the ages and with the blind man in, in John 9 who said, I, I, I don't know everything. Don't have all the knowledge. Here's what I do know. I was blind and now I see. And so as we struggle, Lord, against the world, the flesh, and the devil, we pray that you would open our eyes. And here at your table, we pray that you would give it to us to feast on the glory of the gospel of our Savior Jesus. Amazing love, how can it be? For, oh my God, it found out me. Cause our hearts to rejoice in this very good news. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.